Hello there my friend and welcome to the Ayurveda and Psychology podcast. I am Charlotte Skogsberg, your host for this podcast. I am enchanted to meet and to take you with me on this journey into the human psyche viewed from the holistic approach of yoga and Ayurveda and viewed from the modern man approach of clinical psychology and psychoanalysis. So have something nice to drink next to you, maybe a cup of tea, have a seat, or go out for a nice walk in nature. Enjoy. Today's episode, I um, have decided to dedicate to the clinical psychology perspective. And I also decided to call it why we are unhappy. Now, that is a very bold statement to use as a title because it would mean that I pretend having the one solution to why we feel unhappy. Um, or the one reason, should I say, maybe, to why we feel unhappy. As if there was um, one, one simple reason for it. And even though that is not really the case, we all have our very unique experience. There is one common denominator to all of our ideas about um, how we feel about all our unhappiness in the world. And what's interesting I find as well is that if we look into the yogic perspective and the Ayurvedic perspective, in a certain way, their main goal for unhappiness as well, or um, suffering or disease or imbalance is really the same answer to what I'm going to talk to you about in psychology today, even though it is, of course, expressed differently, coming from a different viewpoint. In the Eastern philosophies of Hinduism, and in, then more specifically in yoga and in Ayurveda, we would say that the reason of unhappiness or suffering is that we have, we're living in the illusion of who we are that basically disease is what happens when we don't see when we don't live according to our true nature just as yoga would say that suffering happens when we don't see our true nature so that when we still ourselves when we still our mind and when we still our bodies as well we let our true nature shine through and i would like to pretend that that is somehow what the early psychologists of the West also meant in their perspective and in their solutions to the human suffering. If we would, for instance, take someone like Freud, who received people in consultation. I mean, he was a, a psychiatrist, a neurologist, actually. Um, and he more or less started developing the talking cure that he came to call psychoanalysis, while his first patient in the matter, famously called Anna O, basically put her hand <laughs> firmly on the table, 
asking him to shut up, let's say, telling him that she wanted to speak. And what he realized was that there's a release, there's a catharsis in the talking cure. When we allow ourselves to speak is when we feel less of the suffering because we've released the resistance that we have inside and we can relax. So what happens is actually that when we release some of the pressure that we walk around with when it comes to our mentality, we ease into the present moment, we ease into who we truly are. And so the way, in my own words, that Freud would explain this is that when he started to look into what the, what the things the person actually said to him, or more even so, what the person wasn't saying, the um, Freudian slips, as we have come to call them, or the silences, or um, the interpretation, the symbolic part, actually, of their discourse, we would let a part of ourselves that we were not aware of shine through. This is how he discovered the unconscious. The unconscious, which is absolutely a part of who we are, but that we have suppressed, repressed, forgotten about, pushed into a dark corner of ourselves because for some reason we did not want to acknowledge it. We did not want to acknowledge it for a certain amount of reasons that are not all actually because it's horrible or bad as we think as adults usually. Let me explain that one. Let me unpack that one first. The things that we push into the unconscious, we do it because somehow we believe that it is bad or horrible. But when we start to unpack it, when it comes to the surface, we realize very often that most of it isn't so bad or so horrible. And this is, once again, the reason of the unhappiness. You see, the reason of the unhappiness is that we walk around, keep pushing away all this stuff about ourselves into the unconscious, and it takes a lot of our energy. It takes a lot of our energy, which means that it makes us tired, and we need to live up to some kind of idea or image that we believe is what we need to be in order to be accepted by everyone else. But the things that we have pushed into the unconscious part of ourselves is very often simply ideas about who we are as an authentic person that will not be accepted by other people if we show them, show it to them, actually. So this is why we push it into the unconscious part of ourselves. What happened in The Talking Cure was that without needing to worry about what the analyst, what Freud, was going to think or even reply to the person. And this is actually why the classical format is to have the person laying on the, um, on the couch, on the divan that the analyst has, which is this you know, kind of half laying down thing. And the analyst would be sitting behind the person so that they wouldn't be so concerned with looking at the analyst. They weren't concerned with what Freud was thinking and so they would just talk, right? And they would talk without being focused on where the conversation was going, 
because this is kind of how our mind is going when we think, right? It just goes around and it has all these ideas about who we are and we make these association, associations association on a daily basis and it goes around 60 million thoughts a day, right? And so what the analyst would do is that he would trace down all these things and he would be more interested in the blanks, in the interpretations that the person would have of their own words and thoughts and into the associations that they would make about things. And the mistake that they would make as they were speaking. So, for instance, saying, I've decided to enroll in a summer course instead of saying a summer course. Somewhere deep down there, why would the person make the mistake of saying curse instead of course? Two similar words, yet we don't actually make the mistake when we think about it. It's symbolically in our heads, the word or the image of the two words are quite separate. But when we say it to someone, for some reason we make the association between these two symbols that are really very different. And so why would we make that mistake in that spot there? Was it maybe because somewhere we saw it as a curse? because we weren't actually looking forward to the summer course. Um, the same thing with dreams, the symbolism in dreams, which is far beyond the word that we use when we speak in the language, because basically the unconscious is structured much more on the symbolic level because it starts way before we have access to the words. You know, have you ever thought about that? You, as a being, sure, you have a native language, that you learned at some point because that's what your caretakers were speaking. But you still have a whole world existing inside of you before you had access to these words. And what if you would learn another language instead of the language that's your native, you know? So you had a whole symbolic existence before you started using the language that you know as your native language. So basically, the person who has not accessed the talking cure still lives with all these ideas about themselves and the fact that they've pushed a lot of it into the unconscious part of themselves. And they're trying to live up to some kind of idea of what they need to be in order to be accepted in the world. If you listen to um, the other episodes of on psychology where I spoke about our survival mode, you also know that our very first strategy of survival is to belong to the group in order to survive. So it means that we need to adapt into what the social rules are in the structure that we come into as infants. So very early on in life we have realized that there's part of ourselves that aren't accepted by them and we pushed it into our unconscious part. Yet they will still be living inside of us and this is a very big part of why we are unhappy later on in life. Because we're trying very hard to live up to some kind of image of what we believe we need to be. And the further, the, or let's say, the bigger the gap is between what we've pushed away and what we believe we need to be, the more uncertainty there is inside of us because there is this gap between the two that we need to fill somehow. So one of the, one of the very common, uh, let's say, questions I get when, and I'm sure that anyone who studied the field of psychology and who would mention that to people they meet will get the exact same question, is when you meet someone for the first time or earlier on, are you analyzing me now? Or, you know, you must be then analyzing people when you meet them. Now, it's interesting that we get that question because rarely do we get 
similar questions if we say that we're an accountant or a secretary or a recruitment consultant like I would be as well at one point. Even a doctor who very often gets questions, of course, as soon as they say that they're doctors, they're not going to start by asking, oh, are you looking into what might be you know, wrong with me somehow physically as we speak right now? It is always this fascination and fear and kind of this mystical thing somehow about the person who is a psychologist, therapist, counselor, probably any kind of that, psychiatrist, anyone who has studied in the field of human psyche will very often get that question when we meet someone for the first time. And of course, it is because somewhere we all have this lingering feeling that there is a part of ourselves that we're pushing away because we're not sure that we would be accepted if people knew about it. It is also why when we let our guard down with certain people, we begin to create a bond. We begin to feel attached to them. This is, of course, family members, but it's also then later on in life, close friends and, of course, loved ones. I would say that when it comes to close friends, like the ones that we know from early, uh, early life, from childhood and so We get very attached to them even if later on in life we might not even have a lot of contact with them because it was easier as children to show some of the parts of ourselves before we'd completely closed that gap, you know, before, before the filter between what's accepted and what's not accepted became very um, opaque became very uh, uh, strong, let's say. And so since these people have accepted us, even though we let some of this shine through, we created a quite strong bond to them. We got attached to them. And later on in life, when we meet, you know, a partner, for instance, someone that we fall in love with, that we, we begin by showing all the good parts. And it's usually when there's been that moment where we allow our guard to lower a little bit so they see certain other things that we are less proud of and we see that they're still around, that's when the attachment happens, right? So that's something that we yearn for. It's also what we see on the therapist couch or whatever kind of um, configuration we have, that this attachment happen as well with uh, our patients with our analysts or clients, whatever we call them, because we're yearning for acceptance of that part of ourselves. So naturally, when you meet someone who studied the field and you ask that question, are you analyzing me now or is that what you do when you meet people? It's because there is a fear that that is happening. Are you seeing me naked right now? And does that mean that you will see through me? Are you not accepting me? Or will you accept me? Will you be there anyway? And me, like I'm imagining most of those listening to this having studied in the field of human behavior and the mind, can acknowledge the fact that that is not the case when you meet someone. Because actually, if there's one thing that you understand when you've studied this a bit, is just how much we don't know and just how complex we are as human beings and just how much strategies we present in the beginning, especially to people, that we would be foolish to pretend that we can analyze someone uh, during a first meeting or even as we've known them for a few months, just seeing them now and then, okay? So no, that is not the case. I, I assure you that we're not interested in doing that when we meet someone to start with either because 
as a therapist, a psychologist, as whatever you are, even if you don't have any of those titles, but just been into the field studying it maybe at some point, you have all those strategies as well. Don't fool yourself that because you've studied it, then you've got it all figured out. So we're all concerned with wanting to be accepted by other people. So we're all using our strategies as we meet other people. So just let me, let me debunk that question straight away. No, you're not being analyzed. Of course, later on, especially when you know people well, there can be a certain vision on behavior that is different And that is one of the things that I wanted to more specifically talk about today when it comes to this idea of why we are unhappy. Because what you see is what you get when you meet people. But at the same time, it is absolutely not the case that what you see is what you get. If you are open to seeing through some of these ways we try to protect ourselves, then yes, if you can look into the person and see that there is the five-year-old, the frightened five-year-old who's just looking for acceptance, then yes, what you see is what you get. But if you're looking on the surface level to the strategies, these silly ideas that we have about, you know, not wanting to be vulnerable, for instance, then you're wrong because what you see is not actually the truth. And that is also the case when, you know, when we try to understand why someone is acting a certain way. And then we'll say, oh, well, I guess it's just who they are. Or maybe there's just, you know, maybe they... Maybe they just weren't thinking when they said that or did that. And actually, that's never the truth. Because you know what? There is always an impulse driving us in anything we do, in anything we say, in anything we don't do, in anything we don't say. Okay, so as I'm going to round it up a little bit, because I promised myself that I would keep these um, episodes to um, half an hour. Why am I then saying, okay, why are we unhappy? The reason we're unhappy. And the reason that we are unhappy is that because we're trying to so strongly live up to some idea of what we need to be and that somewhere deep down inside of us, we have this lingering feeling that that is not really who we are. Then we are shit scared, to use that word, of being naked. And so we try by any means to not let that side of ourselves shine through. And how, what does that look like? Well, it looks like the distractions that we find to other people and to ourselves. So when it comes to other people, how do we distract them from who we really are? Well, it's by pretending to be something that we're not. By, for instance, by always being smiley and happy, for instance, when we are maybe inwardly feeling really unhappy and sad. Or on the contrary, um, being cold um, and pushing people away when all we really want inside of us is to feel connected to other people. It's also to, all the ways we manipulate our appearance, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, our appearance, let's say, by how we look and just the fact, you know, of putting makeup on, for instance, or even I want to say, like, just the fact of wanting to look good you know, the way we dress, the colors we choose and all of that. There's nothing wrong with that, okay? Don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. I'm just saying that all of that is actually ways to manipulate ourselves so that other people, or manipulate them actually, so that other people will want to be around us. Mm -hmm. And then we have all the ways that we distract ourselves as well, because since we don't want to acknowledge that there's a part of ourselves that might not be accepted, then we are very scared of the um, in-between moments, the gaps, the silences. 
So we find ways to distract ourselves with always having noise around us, always listening to something, for instance, when we're alone, always wanting to have music on or listening to a podcast or listening to this and this and that, someone talking, always having, of course, our phones to be distracted with. Social media is perfect for that. Always even wanting to do something, you know, even uh, for people who are seeking spiritually, uh, it's the, oh, I'm going to journal or I'm going to go to, for a walk. It's actually this side of, I need to remove myself from the potential of being unproductive in this moment, in silence and just useless right now. So those of you who don't really want to acknowledge that there's a side to you that you are not aware of, that you are not acknowledging, I should say. Well, can you look at the way you, one, distract yourselves from yourself and distract other people from who you really are? And can you try to don't, not do anything of that? And so by that, I mean not only trying to make yourself look good to other people, but also maybe trying to push away other people because that's also a way to try to manipulate your appearance for them. And are you trying to make yourself be productive by doing things or even being lazy instead? Okay, it goes both ways because the nonchalant I don't care is actually also a strategy of wanting to disconnect from a potential rejection. So that's almost a rejection of yourself, actually, in the moment. So I guess that what I want to say is that there are so many layers to you that what you see on the surface level, what you believe about yourself on the surface level, is never really what is going on. Because there is always something going on. What happens when the music stops? What happens when the laughter stops? What happens when no one's looking? When no one's liking? When no one's commenting? What happens when you, if you're anything like me, lay awake at three in the morning? Impossible to fall asleep. Can you begin something as simple as paying attention to the in-between moments, the silence, the gaps. Can you try not to fill them and simply bring awareness, noticing the presence that it's still there? Then, once you've started doing this, then it is interesting to take action. Because what we can do then is that we can begin to note down on a regular basis what we notice in these silences, in these in-between moments. We will have this idea that the mind becomes more active. It doesn't actually. It's always just as active. It is just that you're not distracting yourself from what the narrative is. So you're being your own analyst, sitting behind the couch, noting down 
that verbal diarrhea, basically, that goes on in your head. So I'm leaving you with that today. Begin simply to notice the in-between moments. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to this podcast and this episode. I am very grateful. If you enjoyed this and you think that other people could enjoy this, please help me to spread the word. Share this episode on any channel that you have of social media or messaging. And even more so, I would really appreciate if you know one other person who might benefit from my words today specifically. Take that one minute it takes to simply share this episode with one person. Remember that there's a human being on the other side of your phone, of your earpods, of this microphone. And I would love to hear your thoughts on what I've been talking about. So please leave a comment. Send me a message directly if you wish. This is Charlotte. This is me. See you next time. Namaste. Mm-hmm.